well, it's so good to be back here. It's terrifying and exhilarating that I know many of you. That's a bad thing. I can't get away with as much <laughs> if a lot of people know me. But a pleasure to be to be back here with you all. Um, just for the few people that that uh, maybe don't know me, my name is Randall, and I live in Clark Range, Tennessee. Um, I'm married to the most beautiful woman on the planet, and her name is Judy. And we have three young children. Michael is uh, going on seven. Heidi just turned uh, five. And little Vincent is uh, two years old, going on about 15 right now. And uh, anyway, I miss my family like crazy. They weren't able to be here with me, but... um, so I may need a shoulder to cry on throughout the week. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I was see, I was, I looked over and saw Samuel and Kate back there seated beside each other, and something's just not. Thanks, thank you, Samuel. Yeah, tone it down for me a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna be missing my wife, definitely. So. Really treasure the friendships from last year. Um, it was a phenomenal time here, and um, I just anticipate uh, getting to know you all better personally, and I look forward to experiencing God together. And hopefully our hearts can draw closer to God, and we can draw closer to each other. Remember about how that happens simultaneously. This little, this little concept of me and God off to the side here doesn't work in God's economy in the economy of the gospel relationship our relationship with God expands as we relate to each other and vice versa it grows together you cannot hate your brother and claim to love God it doesn't work that way and so weeks like this intensives Bible schools are so important as we as we draw closer because it was as we experience love from the person seated beside us it expands our view of God as well. And often those are, that's the environment I have found into which God brings healing into our lives. And I caught a, few, I caught a little bit of what, uh, is it Don? Don Show, Showalter? I look forward to meeting you. I have not even uh, got to say hi yet. But I really want to play into what God's doing here already this week. I feel like I've showed up late to a party. You know, and I'm, I'm playing catch up, but I really want to I want to blend in and 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 be a part of what God's doing here. So bear with me as I do that and 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 get into Matt uh, talked about confession and authenticity, confession and authenticity. Those are very, very good, good things to talk about. In fact, I think uh, many times that's where the journey of healing begins as we move out of isolation and we move towards God and people. And, and for some of us, we tell our stories for the first time, maybe we're just for the first time becoming honest with who we really are and what's really going on. And God says as we confess, he'll bring healing. And somehow that acts as a catalyst of grace in our lives. According to James chapter 5, verse 13. But it's only the first part of the story. Confession and authenticity. You can be authentic 
You can confess all day long. You can spend, you can 24-7, you can be spilling your guts out in front of anybody and absolutely go nowhere. It's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning of it. You can confess and be authentic all day long and still not have the deeper needs of your soul met. The deeper needs of your soul met. And so it's so important as we, as we look at things like, you know, sexual addiction or whatever, any kind of compulsions that we get wrapped up in, as we look at finding answers to those, and we're going to kind of take the scenic route here. Today, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation, but it's so important that we find our heart's needs met in the right places. And I caught a little bit of what John was saying, and I heard him say that it's possible to take the scenic route. And it actually is in our lives when we try to have our heart's needs met in the wrong places. I want to tell you guys a story. I'm going to tell you a story about rats. Bear with me if you've heard this story from me. A hundred million times before. <laughs> Rats. These little guys are, we give them a hard time. In fact, I usually, I usually kill rats. They, they usually die if I have a chance of facilitating that in their lives. Don't care for them. But really, rats are highly sociable, industrious little creatures. Highly sociable. And I guess the rat population out here in North Carolina can thank me later for the little shout-out. Rats are really that way. (laughs) There was this man back in 1978, a Canadian researcher. His name was Bruce Alexander. So he was studying the process of addiction. And back then, you know, they were all, all these secular researchers were on a journey with the subject of addiction. But he had a feeling within himself that maybe research got the whole thing wrong. And so he decided to conduct an experiment. And what did he do? He went out and he bought a large group of rats. So he brought these rats into his laboratory. And so he split rats evenly down the center, divided them into two groups, two groups of rats. We all were familiar with the term lab rats what these things were, lab rats, two groups. And so the first group he put into isolation. He took the rats, and back in those days, and they probably still use these things, they have these little things called Skinner boxes. It's like a little 9 by 12 box that they put these lab rats in to conduct experiments. And they always isolated the rats to conduct experiments up to this point. So let's just, for the sake of a number, let's say all 20 of these rats in 20 isolated little Skinner boxes all by themselves. Over here, Dr. Alexander designed what he called Rat Park. And he built a, he had a large area. And in this area, he built places for rats to play. It was a park. He put toys in this area. Whatever, I don't know what rats play with. <laughs> Rat toys. He built little tunnels. These little rats had homes to live in. And he put those 20 rats in the park. And so back over here with these 20 isolated rats over here, Dr. Alexander 
put two little feeder ports into these little isolated Skinner boxes. One little port gave the rats access to water. And the other little port gave access to morphine, which is a highly addictive narcotic. And so these little these rats over here in isolation, they took a drink of the water, they tasted the water and the morphine. And as they were living out their isolation, they stood they began to they, they, they began to take more and more. They kept returning to the morphine. And as they experienced the mind-numbing effect of the morphine, it started to act as a coping mechanism for what? Their isolation. And they took greater and greater hits of the morphine. They became, And the more addicted they became, the more they went uh, the larger doses they inflicted on themselves, greater and greater and greater doses until they killed themselves. These rats died in isolation. Over here in Rat Park, these 20 rats over here were living their lives and could say that they were living their lives as rats' lives. They were in community. These rats had social connection. They were happy. Their social needs were being met. Could we say that their heart needs, the deeper needs of their souls? (laughs) Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch. But these rats were living as God intended rats to live. Their lives. Dr. Alexander put two ports of access as well, water and morphine. Now here, this is where the story gets interesting. These rats in isolation tasted the water, tasted the morphine. And what do you think they did? These rats turned away from the morphine because they had something so much better. They had connection in their lives, and they were not isolated. They had community. They had community. The story gets more interesting. Dr. Alexander took a group of rats that he, that were highly addicted to drugs. They had been in isolation, given a significant amount of drugs, or they were, they were, they were clinically, they were uh, addicted. And he moved these rats into Rat Park. And these rats voluntarily subjected themselves to withdraw and made a recovery from their drug addiction inside of Rat Park. I just find that story incredibly interesting. And here we are as a secular researcher uncovering the fact that addiction has really nothing to do about drugs or their access to them has to do with something so much bigger, so much bigger than that. And folks, it's never about the pornography. It's never about the, the, uh, the food compulsion. It's never about the food. It's never about the drugs. It's not about the pornography. It's about the deeper needs of our souls, the deeper needs of our souls. 
These rats had much better. They had connection. And the rats in isolation, did you know that just the whole phenomenon of loneliness takes a physical effect on your body? It really does. One piece of research went as far as to say it's the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. The physical tool of loneliness. And ladies and gentlemen, today we are facing an epidemic of loneliness, disconnection. I see a bunch of cell phones scattered out across the table here. And I have one too. I'm I'm on social media. I do that. It's okay. But I'm just telling you, these little gadgets... They're not connecting us to each other or God in healthy ways primarily. They're isolating. Do you really know the person seated next to you? You know, maybe in a Bible school, you know, that's not really possible in just a couple of days. But I want to ask you the question. Are you isolated as a person? Are you isolated? We are wired for connection. In fact... It's written into every fiber of our DNA. We are wired that just a simple handshake, physical contact with you. I'm going to shake your hand. In that moment, what's your name? Nevin. Nevin. His heart rate, maybe not in this context. <laughs> in a normal context, maybe when he's not seated in the front and I'm picking on him. His heart rate's going to drop in that moment because his, his body's going to release a little dose. Nothing at all. I fell flat. Thanks for letting me pick on you. And we calm ourselves through physical connection. Isolation. That's what we're going to look at, and I'd like to explore with you. We're going to, this is going to be very foundational today for many of you. It's going to be a repeat of things you may have heard before. But I just want to make a case for, I just want to draw us primarily to God at the end of this. But I want to take a look at personal isolation and how it affects us. Personal isolation. Get ready for a little bit of whiplash here. I want to watch this movie clip. Can somebody pull that up there? In the back. Um, this this movie clip is not going to be fun, but it's a it's a piece out of a uh, popular movie. It's about four minutes long, and as we watch this movie, I want you to think about isolation and what that looks like. Go ahead.
dear princess, I know you're confused now and I don't blame you. I want you to know none of this is fault. This is between your mom and me. Not a day will go by when I won't think about you and wish you were with me. And that's your mom. All my heart, Daddy. Why, why, why'd you come back? I didn't want to do this today, but it's because I want a divorce, Bert. I'm coming with you, Daddy! think you're doing? I'm going with you. Honey, that's impossible. But I'm going with you. No, you've got to stay here with your mama. Are you going to help me out here? You told me you wanted me with you, remember? Let go. Now, don't do this to yourself, okay? Don't make a scene. Now, go on back inside. Go ahead. You know I'd take you with me if I could. You can. Try to understand, baby. Connie and I, we need this time to ourselves to try to make a goal of it. Then I'll come back for you. I promise. I promise. I promise. Now go on inside, please. want you, Bernice. You're my little princess. No. But your mama, she needs you. No. And you need her. No, I I love you, princess. Please. I gotta go. No! That's a, that's just a terrible, absolutely gut-wrenching scene. And it, it pulls out a lot of very, very deep places in my heart. But that's a piece of isolation right there, folks. And I'd like you to, I'd like you to just, I'd like you to think about yourself personally. That whole scene there is, uh become very popular in psychological circles or whatever in discussing attachment. Um, it's a very difficult scene. But our, 
our, our relationship to those around us and our processing of pain and rejection in our lives sets up the foundation for some very difficult things in our lives, even as young children. I want to take this a little step further. I'd like to just talk about, I'd like to talk about attachment here in, as, a, as kind of an uh, uh, introduction. And, and as we're talking about this, I'd like you to ask yourself the question, what does isolation really look like in your life? In proximity, in fact, very close proximity to the person beside you. Or you can have very close proximity to thousands of people in your life physical proximity and still be very isolated. You can have 1,500 friends on Facebook and interact every day with 100 or 200 of them and still be highly isolated. In fact, you can be in a church every Sunday, every Wednesday evening, and you can still be highly isolated without the deeper needs of your soul being met. And so I want to ask the question, how does this begin? What makes this happen And really, ultimately, hopefully we get to answer the question, how do we walk away from this? How do we make a recovery out of this? What's that journey look like? And I have no idea what Don has been teaching here this week. And I I caught a little bit of it, and and I think maybe he was talking about some of the recovery piece this morning. I missed like 95% of it. But I'm I'm just hopeful that God can bring all this together. And I hope I'm not yanking you back from something that Don was in you. Uh, but I'd like to just look at the foundational, some foundational elements of attachment. Back in the 1940s, there were some researchers who were working inside of an orphanage environment. And back, this was the foundations or the beginning of some, some research that was done in regards to how do infants, how do little children attach to their parents, what defines, what defines high-functioning infants or children from emotionally dead infants. Like, what, what does this process look like? So, basically, and here's the short version, these guys developed a simple little test, and it's a little crude in nature. But I want you to think this through, and I want you to be thinking about yourself personally. I want you to be asking yourself, what is my style of attachment? These little children would be uh, left alone. Imagine a 20-foot square room. And in this room, there's a rocking chair and there's toys spread out for these children. And a mother brings her child and sits down here in the rocking chair with her baby, her infant. Let's say he's a year and a half old. And he's, this is a brand-new room. He's never been in this room before, so it's highly unfamiliar. And he's going around and he's saying, this is a new room, but here's mom. Mom is here. And she, mom's holding the little baby. And he's receiving the reassurance of mom's presence close by. And so with the passage of a little bit of time, little junior, what does he do? Mom is here. He gets down off, he crawls down off her lap. Box of toys nearby and he starts to play with the toys and there's toys further at the other end of the room and little little junior is starting to crawl away and he's periodically turning around and he's checking back in with mom is she still there and little guys they make 
eye-to-eye contact with mom for about two to three seconds. And it fills their love tank back up again. They reestablish contact with mom. And they crawl a little further. You see, the secure base in their life is seated in that rocking chair. And from that platform, they have the ability to go out and explore and play. And they can check back in at any time. Mom is there in the rocking chair. And everything is okay with the world. Two to three seconds of eye contact. Love need met in that child's life. Because they are healthily attached. In what? Relationship with mom. And out of that secure attachment, they find the ability to move out and play and explore their world in confidence. In confidence. The next part of the test is mom is suddenly removed from the room. And replaced with a stranger in the rocking chair. Now here's where it gets interesting. You see, and it all depends about, it all depends on how the infant up to this point has been conditioned in life. It all depends on how the infant has been conditioned. You see, if this child, at the deep level of his or her her soul, believes that mom is there for me, If that child is anchored deeply in relationship, what do you think is going to happen? Take a stab at it. Mom has left the room. There's a stranger in the rocking chair. Panic. It's called protest. I was thinking about demonstrating it for you. I know what that sounds like a lot. I won't do that. Protest. Little Junior falls apart because mom is not there for him. And by the way, that is one of the most highly significant responses your little one or two year old boy or girl can have. And it's highly, highly healthy. It's one of the most significant things. Because, see, the, 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 the baby has been conditioned that when I need, mom is there. And, by the way, that's a very godly thing. A very godly thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Some infants in the experiment, or in the testing, it wasn't an experiment, in the, in the testing, they would... Mom would be replaced with the stranger. And they would look over. They had gotten down from mom's lap and and started playing. But they weren't checking in with mom for the reassurance. Because long ago they had learned that when mom, when they needed, when they needed, mom was not there. And in this situation, they just turned, recognized that the stranger was in the room, and they just went on with no protest whatsoever. And this was an indicator, correlated, highly correlated, indicator of how these 
little children would do relationships later in life. Absolute, almost foolproof indicator in how these little children would process love. Could, did this child know how to receive love? Was it given love? And what had simply happened with the children who turned and didn't care? Their relationship style turned into an avoidant, unreceptive style of relating where they just didn't need people. And, why, and you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why, didn't these, why, did this, why did these little babies, what happened to them? They simply gave up because it was there for them at the end of the day. Those children who responded healthily in protest because they were anchored in love, anchored in love. Their style of relationship throughout their lifespan was one of openness with the ability to give and receive love. And that's not to say that life circumstances after a year and a half didn't have an impact or, you know, of any significance. Absolutely not. This is general, we're talking in general terms here. But is it possible, like the, the, the unbelievable, like my friend Tim Clinton says, the seeds of addiction are sown as early as a one-year-old baby. The foundations of addiction can be sown. Because the bigger question is, what do I do? And our style of attachment, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that's the more appropriate term. Really, guys, really, our style of attachment it manifests itself in a situation of duress, just like little Junior in this little room here. When the wheels, and the question is, where do you turn when the wheels come off the wagon? The wheels came off. Mom was suddenly gone. And I want to ask you the question, where do you turn? To keep the story continuing, when little Junior, after a period of protest, mom is brought back into the room. Junior, the little guy that's been checking in with his mom for two to three seconds of affirmation of her love and connection with him. What does he do when mom enters the room? He jumps up. And it's 100 miles per hour with those little legs straight in a line for mom. And mom picks him up. And a hallmark, just a very key piece here, the baby melts into the mother's arms. Melts into the mother's arms. We've seen that. We know what it looks like. And little Junior is de-stressing himself because mom has returned and his secure base has returned. And the world is suddenly okay again. And little Junior calms himself. Mom is there. The other little fella who's learned that mom isn't there. Mom re-enters the room. There's a Maybe a slight acknowledgement of his of her return, but there's no happy reunion. 
because he doesn't really believe somebody's there for him. What is your attachment style? And what do you turn to when the wheels come off the wagon? Maybe the wheels don't ever come off here in North Carolina. They do in Muddy Pond. Right, Ryan? <laughs> Got too many people from home here. I can't tell stories, right? Where do you turn? It's a highly significant question, by the way. Very significant question. That could alter the course of your life. Where do you turn in situations of duress? Are you isolated? And let me ask you the question. We're talking about little infants here. But just put yourself in these shoes, one and the other uh, at different times. Healthily attached, unhealthily detached. We're moving through life, and we're now 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And we're in church, and the preacher is teaching about God's love, forgiveness, Do you think that there's any equation with, with what has happened in this child's life? Or, and then we're just talking, let, let's, 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 let's just say, let's, let's, let's think about highly impacting events like at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Obviously, life sometimes includes very difficult, painful pieces. Isolation, right? Pain will either isolate you or it will connect you with other people and God. It kind of works that way. And we're seated in a Sunday morning service, and the preacher's up here talking about God's love. Do you think anything, you think little Junior, now at 12 years old, what do you think his concept is going to be when the invitation is given? What would he be responding to? If you really didn't believe anyone was there for him, Do you think that could affect his concept of who God is as a father? And his or her ability to receive love. And let me ask you this question. If, you, if, if we don't have the ability to receive love, how do you think going to... Are we not just automatically isolated from God? Because God is love, patient towards love. It really is. Sometimes we're allergic to the word grace, and we break out in hives and do all kinds of things. But really, grace and love, that whole process, the process of the gospel, it's a beautiful thing. And sometimes I think we're seated here. And some of us have been churched for 20 or 30 years. And we can be sitting here in these pews, and the love of God can be talked about, and it goes straight over the top of our heads. With zero impact. And I've been there. Like, that's me. Zero. It's like, you know, kind of looking at a fire hydrant. Just gushing water. It's like I'm not getting any of that. I mean, yeah, God is love, the fire hydrant. But the ability to be able to walk over and drink deeply. I was stuck in that for 20 years of my life. Actually, probably more like 23 years. I'm only 34 years old. And I grew up in church. I went to church every Sunday. I went to church every single Wednesday evening of my life. 
And I had zero ability at the end of all that to really know who God was. In fact, I was terrified because in my mind, responding to God was just a whole opportunity, another opportunity to be rejected. And why would I engage in that enterprise when my world for 25 years fell apart consecutively and consistently? The human relationships in my life. Why would I give God a chance? And I'm sitting here with stuff. God is love. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's really good on paper. Right over the top of my head. And last year I told the story about how some of that stuff began to heal in my life. And if you want to hear that story, come talk to me. I'll tell you. But I'm really passionate about this because this is my story. Do you think, what do you think my heart needs were at this point in my life? Do you think I was, was I an isolated rat or was I in Rat Park at this point in my life? It's pretty isolating. And let me tell you, I was addicted. And if you're isolated, <laughs> you will be addicted because it's like, Having our heart needs met for connection, we're wired for this. It's a part of God's plan. He's created us for deep relationship. He designed us for marriage, by the way. In case you didn't know that, it's probably God's will for your life maybe someday. Maybe not, but we're designed for close, intimate relationships with God and with each other. And if those needs are not being met... You, and I like to put it this way, you will breathe. You will breathe. Like you can't all of a sudden just decide, I'm not going to breathe, right? Just Like maybe you're good for 30 seconds. And at 30 seconds, maybe, you know, it's like maybe I should reconsider this. No, 45 seconds. And after, if you're good, maybe a minute or two, and all of a sudden, you're going to do it. You're going to get a breath. You will breathe. And let me tell you something. You will connect with something. I heard Don talk about pornography. Like you will have a go-to at some level. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's... It could be almost any compulsively read the Bible out of the same compulsion. And they're, they're, they've, they've really short-circuited the whole process of what it means to be anchored in love. I've got to read this Bible. I've got to go to church. And they're, they're totally missing the heart of God and the deeper need of our souls simply are not being met. <clears throat> Let's open our Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 4. A lot of recap here. Sorry if you've heard all this before, as I know some of you guys have. John chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do. Christ was breaking some unbelievable cultural boundaries here. Jesus answered, verse 10. Let's just marinate in these words for a little bit. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is. And I want to ask you to stop right there. What does this really mean? What does it, what does it really mean 
to know the gift. What is the gift, by the way? What is the gift? What do you think it is? And Christ is saying here, if you knew this gift, and if you could, if you could start drinking from this fountain that I have here, you could stop this whole thing of, you know, going through husbands like hotcakes or whatever, like just five husbands going on six. Like maybe this whole process, maybe there's something so much better. And in fact, it's so good. Jesus is saying, this is so unbelievably good. Do any of this, and it would satisfy the deeper needs of your soul. And you could stop it all. And the woman was just blown away. She went back into the town and said, listen, guys, listen. This is crazy. If you knew the gift you got, I want to ask a question. Is love, is love a fact or is it a feeling? We talked about this, you know, the fire, the fire hydrant over there. Was love a fact or a feeling to me as I'm, as I'm here at 22 years old? And I'm saying, yeah, that, that sounds really good on paper. In fact, you know what? I bring this, I preach out of this Bible every time. It's pretty tattered. It's went through a lot. But I used to, I used to not believe a word, one word in this Bible. And I grew up as a Mennonite kid and I read it every day. But I fell into unbelief. I didn't believe anything in here. Zero. And I like to remind myself of that every time I look at this and I think about the process of healing in my life. I'm just here to say, guys, God is so I'm going to say, lost my train of thought there, but God is really good. I'm just telling you. Unbelievably good. I think about the days of when I was caught in addiction. I was up to my eyeballs in pornography and all kinds of other things. I was self-harming. And I was ready to put a bullet in my head. And God somehow got into the, and I didn't believe this. And God got into the middle of that. And I wish I had a picture of my wife and kids today. I mean, it's just, it will absolutely blow your mind. It will blow your mind. God is so good. And I, he gave me this wonderful woman and kids. Like, I don't deserve any. And I'm just here to say, this is who the Father is. Like, He really is this guy in the rocking chair. And He really does want you to run to Him. Don't ever believe the crazy lie that God is the guy that's going to get up and walk out on you. That's not who God is. I don't know what has happened to you. And I don't even care, frankly, but I'm okay with that, by the way. Because I'm a recovered agnostic. I understand what that's like. But don't give up on God, even if you don't believe in him. And I would say this to you. Move towards people. 
If you don't believe in God right now, just move towards people. That's how it's going to start. Move towards people. And in my life, the thing that started facilitating connection was a person. That started demonstrating what God, who God was. And as I got to experience that, one person, one person. All of a sudden, one day I woke up and realized that my heart was starting to give God a chance again. Just kind of out of the blue. And I, with it, it took several years. But I recovered my faith. Like that's who God is. He's so, so good. Let's uh, return to the one <laughs> just now figured out what. <laughs> is love a fact or a feeling? Is it a fact or a feeling? And see in our lives. And you know what? I want to make the argument that it's both. God's love is very factual. What if you told little Junior, the healthy Junior, about love? In fact, you could just look at Junior and you could see a healthy attachment in love. Junior is anchored in He could tell you about it. His behavior tells you what it is to be anchored in love. Does Junior experience his mother's love as a fact? Sure he does. Is it a feeling? Melting into mom's arm. Of course it's a feeling. And when it's not there, he's not okay. It's not okay. It's absolutely a feeling. But I want to ask, your, I want to ask the question, what if, you're, what if you're like me and you're stuck in the whole factual thing and you're isolated and, and you're caught up in the pain and you've, kind of, you've made the decision with a passage of time that people and God really aren't going to be there for me? You kind of shut down and, and you're seated here in these pews. And we're talking about love. We're talking about the fire hydrant. And you're saying, listen, I can't, I'm not even getting a drop. You see, like in our lives, when little Junior decides, when he gave up on love, because of the difficult circumstances in his life, that had consequences for him personally. And took him away from God and others. And I want to ask you this question. What does it look like to make a recovery out of a situation like that? And I think with what Don was saying, what does healing look like? And I would just absolutely love to hear that whole thing fleshed out. Maybe you're done with that, Don, but I want to learn more about that. But what does healing really look like? I heard Don say something about healing our, our, our memories. You see, in the prefrontal cortex of our brain, we have kind of a feeling and a thinking center, a feeling and a factual center of our brains. In healthily adjusted people, and little junior who's healthy, those two centers are attached right here in the metrical circuitry that happens between those two centers. And if my little boy, because I'm missing him right now, little Michael, you know, if I say, Michael, I love you, ideally he's going to experience that as a fact and a feeling. And if, if, if we had some little brain, if we had some little probes hooked up to Michael's brain where we could uh, analyze the electrical circuitry that happens in that moment, those two frontal lobes of the brain would light up simultaneously. 
and you could observe the, the circuitry happening between the fact and feeling centers of the brain. Because he's experiencing, experiencing love. And I'm not saying this is just, I'm not promoting a whole bunch of emotionalism here. Like love is factual at many times in our lives. But we can't stop there imagining, you know, Ryan, what if, what if you approach your relationship with your wife just factually? Like how does that really go? Like sometimes we get caught in fact, or is he ever any, maybe? I mean, it's okay. I'm just saying, like, we, 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 our relationships flourish when it's both, when we're, when it's both, fact and feeling. Sorry to pick on you. Fact and feeling both. And in, 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 in individuals who have had this, this very, the pain of life, and we've made the decision to shut down, the, the, the activity, it just kind of stays in one side of the brain, and it's just the factual side of the brain, the factual side of the brain. And the, the brain activity moves to the re- like moves back. And you know what? In, 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 in someone that's, that's experiencing love, you can literally see it in a person's eyes, like a little child, just, just there. Because the electrical, <laughs> really, the electrical circuitry is happening up here where it's meant to be. We are designed, we're wired for connection, guys. Created for this. And you know what the interesting process is? This stuff can heal. And as we experience healing, like I heard, the love of God becomes personal to us. And we engage in that process. Maybe it, maybe it begins slowly. It took me maybe four years. Like it wasn't, maybe it's going to be instant for you. Maybe it has been instant, instant healing. I love that. Sometimes we can't push a button though, make that happen. But as we start to process the painful memories, and like I like to say, we bring Christ, make him a part of our pain, because that's really who he is. You know what, in Isaiah, it says he first, he first died for our pain. Read that verse in Chapter 53 talks about our sins in a second. He died first for your pain in that verse. It's beautiful. But the beautiful thing is, is that God can heal that electrical circuitry and that brain activity can move forward again and it can be processed up here in the frontal lobes and that electrical circuitry can reconnect that can be healing and you can literally observe the healing process in a brain scan this is not just some kind of crazy spiritual out there phenomenon it can literally be measured I heard one guy say that it kind of correlates like somebody that's just gets freshly saved, that that is freshly saved by Jesus. That that, those areas of the brain are especially lit up because it's just new and fresh. They're experiencing God's love. Knowing the gift. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 
1 John chapter 4. Uh, let's go with verse 13. We know. Let's just marinate in this a little bit. You know, let's just, just really take this in. I'm reading in the NIV version here. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If any that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Think little junior. He's relying on God's love and he knows that he can't in any way live without it. And I want to ask the question, um, what is my time frame here, uh, Samuel? Okay, yeah, just let me know or raise your hand or whatever. And so we know and rely, verse 16, on the love God has for us. God is love. He really is the guy seated in the rocking chair that will be there for you. This is, this is fact. This is reality. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. That sounds like the wheels coming off the wagon. We will have confidence because of love. And if we're not anchored in love, have anyone, has anyone in here been kind of terrified that what if God just comes back, like the whole return of Christ thing? <laughs> I've been there. Sometimes even as a saved, you know, because I'm not anchored in love. It's just talking about this whole phenomenon with little Junior here. You see, God had all this, I'll just came along. And counselors, God is love. Whoever lives in love, whoever lives in love, lives in God, and God in Him. Remember, little Junior melting into mom's embrace. And by the way, this can be a father figure as well, like an attachment figure in a little one-year-old boy or girl. Most often, primarily is the mother, but fathers play that role as well. It's both. In this way. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the, in the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. You see, being anchored in love transforms us into God's image. It's like, it gives us confidence. We de-stress ourselves in God's love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I, perfect love drives out fear. It's just like fear starts coming through the door and love just runs back there and gives him a beating and drives him out. There's no place for fear in the presence of love. Because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who is not made perfect in love. And you can be, you can be saved and be fearful. But the goal is to move towards love. I don't care if you're scared. Um, and I'm not sitting here saying you should question your salvation if you're fearful. I mean, I, I enjoy talking about salvation and what that is, but are you, are you anchored in love? If you're not anchored in love, let's get there. Let's move towards that. That's what salvation is. It really is. We love because he first loved us. And that's where we're going to stop. And really, throughout the rest of the week, we're going to look at the next verse there and what this 
uh, phenomenon means here. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother. You know, like, how does this whole concept of being anchored in relationships, how does this whole process flesh itself out in our churches? Is it alive and well in our churches? What is the quality of your relationship with God and with others? And in fact, in, the, in God's economy of the gospel, we can't just say here, oh, by the way, and I'm isolated from all you guys, but man, do I have something going on here, me and God. <laughs> Sorry, can't kid yourself like that. Nothing like that ever has existed in God's economy, in the gospel. Because that's a model of isolation. And so I'd like to just look at how we can be, like, just how can we live in connection? And the foundational element of this is, is finding healing for our, through relationships with God and with others, the healing piece that, that Don was talking about. And then how do we create a community of connection? Like, what if, what if this room here, was that like the connection piece what if we came to church and we and we found and we the relationships and connections that we find here it's de-stressing like and that's a little bit that's why Matt's I think introductory sessions were good you can't walk through these doors with your story behind you and expect you're going to come in here and receive grace that's not how it works in God's economy what would it be like and how can we do this well how can we do this better than we are right now? So God bless you. I look forward to exploring some of this stuff with you uh, more deeply. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to go into, I want to go into the subject, I think, unless, you know, and please, I welcome your feedback. If you want me to talk on a certain subject, just ask me. But I'd like to talk about how, I'd like to talk about cross-gender relationships. I, he- I heard that you all were talking. I want to talk about boundaries, appropriate boundaries. I want to look at how when we have our heart needs met, that's a platform off of which we can relate well to each other. And that's how we can do community well. All right, God bless you. Let's pray.